Join us for Diffusion Digital at Diffusion.events, our two-day virtual conference from the 15th to the 16th of September, showcasing leading projects from across Web3 with fireside and panels featuring leaders like Joe Lubin of Ethereum and others from projects including SET Protocol, The Graph, Apple Labs, Parity, R3, Gollum and eToro. So today I'm really happy to welcome the founder of Oasis Labs, Dawn Song. Welcome, Dawn. Thanks a lot for having me. You describe Oasis Labs, at least on the website, as the all-in-one tool for controlling and sharing data. Um, with the Oasis network, you're looking to build a better internet. Actually, that's the tagline we use at Outlier for our accelerator. So I think we're, we're probably well aligned. Um, and you describe it as one that protects the data rights of individual users whilst enabling fundamentally new use cases and applications. And we're going to unpack a lot of what that means later. Um, you also have something called the Open Foundation, and that is putting open data in the context of open money and open finance, and now, of course, open data. And this is something that I personally really subscribe to. And again, a uh, fundamental part of the thesis that we've been developing at Outlier Ventures for several years. So some of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, firstly, you're an award-winning professor and academic. You've won the MacArthur Fellowship and the Guggenheim Fellowship for Natural Sciences, as well as a serial entrepreneur. Not many people manage to straddle both of those worlds. You've managed to do it very effectively. At Oasis Network, you're focused on an area, as I said, that's been really core to the thesis at Outlier Ventures, um, that of a what we call a new data, a new open data economy, um, as well as this convergence of machine learning and blockchain. Um, and so I believe you call what we call the open data economy, the responsible data economy. And again, we're going to come to exactly why that terminology and why you believe we need a more responsible data economy. But I think if you look at your kind of academic background, um, specifically in security, this idea that it is possible to build a, an antidote to surveillance capitalism seems to be a theme that runs through a lot of the work that you're doing. Um, but also, as I've been doing the Web3 Founder podcast, uh, you uh, specifically have come up in the journey of other founders, I believe, as a consequence of the work that you've been doing at Berkeley. So these are the several reasons why I'm really excited to have you on the show. So um, by way of a kind of segue into understanding your origin story, which I'll, I'll try my best to summarize, um, as I mentioned, you, you've your research interests in academia lie within uh, deep learning and security, in particular, privacy issues in computer systems and networks, distributed system security and applied cryptography, as well as this intersection of machine learning and security. So I believe you first uh, began uh, studying in academia um, in, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, you might have to correct me, but it's Sing Yuwa University. Did I get it right? Uh, Tsinghua University uh, in Beijing, China, yes. Right. And was that physics? Like, I didn't, couldn't actually understand exactly what it was, but I heard reference somewhere you started out in physics. Right, yeah, yes, my undergraduate was in physics. 
Okay, perfect. All right, I'm glad. I'm glad I got that bit right. Would have been an awkward start. Um, you then did uh, a uh, master's in the science uh, field of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University, graduating in '99. Uh, you then went to the University of California, Berkeley, and you did a, a doctor of philosophy um, in computer science. Um, and uh, then went back to Carnegie Mellon as a professor from 2002 to seven. Um, I guess the kind of more relevant work specific to, to blockchain and, and some of the stuff that you're doing now at Oasis was uh, as a professor at Berkeley, which is, is present from 2007 to now, so uh, around 13 years. And there are several different research centers that you either lead or play a very active role in. Um, I'll try my best to summarize some of them, but things like real-time intelligence, secure explainable systems, RISE Lab, uh, all the way through to the Berkeley Institute for Data Science, Berkeley Artificial Intelligence Research Lab, um, and uh, Foundations of Resilient Cyber-Physical Systems Forces. So uh, very varied, but of course, um, related. And I believe in parallel to a lot of the work that you've been doing at Berkeley, and as I said, where you've been formative to a number of people's careers in, in blockchain, um, you've also been a serial entrepreneur, but that was something I, I couldn't find so much information about. So it'd be really interesting to understand your journey as, as I guess, an academic in the space, but also somebody that's been commercially exploring or exploring the commercialization of some of these research areas. Ah, great. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, and uh, it's really impressive. It uh, sounds like you did a lot of research uh, before this, uh, this podcast. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, yes, talking about the entrepreneurship side. Uh, so I've been you know, doing research, uh, as I mentioned, for, for you know, decades now. And uh, as my risk group uh, as we develop new technologies. I went in this way to write papers and also, you know, a number of our papers got like best paper awards or uh, test of time uh, uh, awards and so on. Uh, so it's one thing to push forward on the research frontier. Uh, and at the same time, in addition, it, it's often very rewarding to um, try to see the technology um, having real impacts uh, in the real world. So that's the next step is about taking research technology actually into the real world um, by you know, doing startups, commercializing it, uh, developing products and so on to really have the technology uh, taking the next step. And uh, so in the past, uh, I actually have done this a few times. The first time was uh, a startup called Insider Security where uh, we focus on uh, mobile security, in particular, developing automated technologies and tools to analyze mobile apps, uh, for example, Android apps and so on, to analyze for its uh, security vulnerabilities as well as uh, malicious behaviors. And this information can be very helpful in protecting, uh, for example, uh, mobile phone users and enterprise uh, against um, mobile security threats. And uh, yeah, so that company was successful. It was uh, acquired by FireEye and, uh, uh, and the product actually was used by like, Fortune 500 
companies and governments around the world. And was that a spin-out? Was that something that was developed within, say, Berkeley with students and then was span out as a commercial entity, or was this in parallel? Yeah, so the technology started out in my research uh, lab at, at Berkeley. Um, yeah, we developed these automated uh, security analysis tools for, uh, for mobile apps. And uh, as the technology uh, becomes you know, powerful uh, and sufficiently powerful to, again, to really analyze these real-world apps, that's when me and some, some of my students, we realized uh, it's a good time to take this to the real world and uh, to have the technologies and tools to benefit the real world as well. Um, yeah, so that's how that happened. And what are the time cycles in, involved in something like that? So obviously, often these things are referred to as deep tech, and the, that, that definition usually means that uh, it could be decades of research before the commercialization of, of a technology. But how does that work for you in, in, in that, an adventure like that? Yeah, the technology was developed actually uh, you know, over a long period of time. And in fact, these automated uh, analysis tools, we, you know, like I started uh, the research in the space, initially actually was in uh, program binaries. That was, um, uh, I think, even when I was, when I was at Carnegie Mellon. And, uh, and then, so these program analysis tools, uh, the, oftentimes they actually share similar um, similar principles and, and theory, but you can apply it actually in different domains. We certainly in program binaries uh, uh, with uh, develop some of the first, uh, you know, uh, analysis dynamic uh, uh, and static analysis tools in uh, program binaries with uh, advanced capabilities like symbolic execution and so on. And, and then also the work in actually analyzing web applications. And then, and then for mobile application, I think the timing was also very good. Uh, and, uh, and certain features uh, in mobile application makes the technology um, more effective uh, in addressing certain types of issues. Uh, so, so yeah, so I would say the accumulation of uh, you know, technical ex expertise and developing the right approach and solutions it takes many years of uh, research and, uh, and development. Um, and so you were talking about that was one instance, but there were kind of several more where you'd kind of span out and commercialize. Actually, the company is now called the Mellon Security. So what we, it also started out uh, as a, a research technology developed in my research group. Uh, essentially, it's about secure browsing. So as you... Uh, for example, as you browse uh, through the web, uh, of course, there can be you know, malicious JavaScript that comes through, and uh, some of these uh, uh, right, malicious codes, they can uh, compromise your browser, compromise your machine, and, uh, uh, and then leave the user uh, in the insecure state. So, so the idea is can we actually build a really easy way uh, that doesn't really impact user experience. User can still browse the web uh, like how he or she uh, normally does, but actually provides a strong protection um, to prevent, for example, this malicious, like and the JavaScript, other malicious code 
to come through. So, so one way to view it is like building a glass box where you you contain uh, the malicious code inside uh, this glass box. So the user can still see and interact with the web page as normal. But it's more like through this glass box, you can see what's inside, but what's inside cannot come out. So that's just one analogy. So essentially, that's what we call a secure browsing. Uh, so the way to think about it, actually the glass box is kind of in the cloud. So it's a cloud browser um, that renders uh, the web page in a sandbox environment and it passes through um, uh, the, uh, essentially allows the user to view and interact uh, with, the, uh, with the web page through this secured um, you know, glass box. And uh, so this way, the user's machine is protected, um, but at the same time, the user's uh, browsing experience uh, stays the same. Uh, so, so that yeah, so that company is also doing well. It uh, also it has Fortune five hundred companies as its customers uh, around the globe as well. So these are all uh, great examples how technology is developed uh, in a research group. Uh, can you know uh, can really help benefit the real world yeah it's fascinating and so and it's a good segue into oasis labs where you're your founder and ceo but in a way it could be said that you as a as an innovator you're almost building a, a portfolio of ip um that you can then um commercially exploit with various teams um how how is your role in in these organizations is 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 it the same as now with oasis where effectively you are you, you play a role in the early stage of a company in terms of kind of helping bring it to market provide that leadership but then you you kind of step back and there's a a, a bigger team that kind of scale that how as a founder how would i uh, understand because obviously there are different types of founders. Um, how would I understand, you know, typically your role as a founder in that context of these kind of R and D spinouts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Oftentimes, these technologies, even though we have been, you know, working on the development in the research lab for uh, oftentimes a long time, um, but when we first take it uh, into the commercial world, it's still early, and oftentimes uh, you still need to figure out. What is a product? Um, so, uh, right, because in you know in academia in the research setting we focus on developing the technology, developing you know the best cutting edge technology, and solving really hard, challenging technical problems. Um, but when you take that technology into the real world, you then actually have to figure out what is the right product to build um, that that technology can enable and make it easy. Uh, to use, make it easy to uh, deploy and uh, and solve customers' pain points, and uh, and because of that, then oftentimes um, the person who does that needs to know the technology well, uh, and and also you know seeing uh, the real world uh, problems, and they can see what problem the technology can help solve and what's the best um you can call the beach hands and so on how to 
uh, best tuned technology into a product. And um, and because of that, I think oftentimes, at least uh, right, in these uh, examples, uh, like I oftentimes uh, like uh, right in in, uh, in Oasis case and also in Sandus case, like I was a CEO, and uh, a big part of it is to try to identify um, how to best apply the technology in the real world. Um, uh, right. So, so I think, uh, especially at the early stage, uh, that's really important uh, because, yeah, you need someone who knows the technology very well to to do that. You know, often when I speak to founders who are from an R and D background, especially an academic one, um, they are very good at solving technical problems, but they're quite difficult for a non-technical person like myself to keep up with. But I must say, just even hearing you talk now about analogies like a, containing things in a glass box um, and uh, other interviews that I've seen, you're, you're very good at framing and simplifying complexity. And so I, I think that's, um, that's clearly why you've been able to be so successful in the commercialization of projects. So um now you're at Oasis Labs, founded in March 2018, where you're founder and CEO. You've been backed by a number of major investors, including uh, Andreessen, uh, Excel, as well as Binance uh, and, and several others. I believe um, you have two parts of that, Oasis Labs and Oasis Foundation, um, and Mainnet is imminent at time of talking, so we're September two, uh, 2020, and this will allow the, the network to become uh, token optimized. Before we get into Oasis Labs, I think it's important to step back a bit and frame the mission. So as I alluded to earlier, you refer to it as a responsible data economy, um, something we would at Outlier would refer to as an open data economy. But um, it would be great to hear from you. Firstly, why do we need a responsible data economy? I'm assuming if we kind of, it is, it is in response to the current data economy and what's wrong with it. Obviously, um, a word that's starting to resonate beyond kind of uh, the, the niche of a technical community is surveillance capitalism. This idea that the current business model of the data economy is 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 not working or doesn't work for the average user. But it'd be great to hear from you. you know, why do we need a responsible data economy? You know, why is that mission important to you? The most, presumably, the most important thing to you, because you could be working on several other things right now, were it not Oasis Labs. So uh, yeah, that's a very good question, and uh, it's also you know an area that I've been working for a very long time. Uh, so today, as we all know, that data is a key driver of modern economy. It helps us uh, extract better insights, helps us to make. Uh, better decisions and so on, and especially you know with the rise of uh, data science, machine learning, and so on, um, uh, it's becoming uh, even more important. And in the future, it's going to be prevalent um, in terms of how important data is. Um, however, at the same time, a lot of this data is sensitive, and handling the sensitive data has been posing many challenges, as we have experienced today. 
So first, let's look at on the user side. Uh, on the user side, uh, a lot of users um, uh, realizing that they are actually losing control of their data. Uh, once their data is collected, oftentimes they don't even know when their data is being collected and what data of theirs is being collected. And they don't know when after that data is collected, how it's being used, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, and also, uh, right, users are losing trust of the services that they use uh, because of this as well. Um, and also at the same time, users are not getting sufficient benefits from their own valuable data. Um, of course, users are getting certain free services and so on. Um, but um, in the future, as we know, again, data is going to be even more important. And also, ultimately, in the future, I think a big part of who you are is actually going to be defined by your data, by your digital self. And hence, there is, of course, the question, is it sufficient just for users to get these free services, or actually users can um, get even more uh, direct benefits from their data? So that's one side for on the user side. And on the business side, we're also seeing a lot of challenges. Um, first, businesses continue to suffer really large-scale data breaches and so on. So even when they want to do a good job, oftentimes they just don't have sufficient uh, technologies and tools to help them with that. And also with the rise of uh, uh, the uh, new uh, privacy regulations, such as GDPR, CCPA, and so on, is becoming more and more cumbersome and expensive for the businesses to uh, uh, in, to comply with these regulations. And uh, and there has been estimates, even just for CCPA alone, it's going to cost like billions of dollars for businesses to comply. And even more importantly. What we are seeing, what we continue to hear is that it's actually really difficult for businesses to get access to data, to actually utilize data. A lot of valuable data is locked up in data silos due to privacy concerns and so on. And even with COVID, it's a very good example. Um, uh, data, of course, is really important for us to uh, better fight uh, against COVID-19. Um, both in terms of uh, doing better contact tracing so that we can better identify who are infected and who are at risk uh, and what's the right measure to take and also to identify um, you know, how to better, uh, like, again, who may be sick and hence how to better utilize like, hospital resources and so on. Um, but in general, uh, Still, it's actually difficult for people to get, uh, like for example, for medical researchers to get access to data uh, to help them develop better tools and uh, and cures uh, for COVID and so on. And and sometimes it actually goes the other way too far. Uh, then there's no privacy protection, and some of uh, even uh, earlier the guidance that was put in place was also you know. But there is also discussion about removing them and to uh, try to optimize for speed and so on. So then, uh, again, I think the COVID-19 is a great example 
showing that we really need to have better and more effective and systematic uh, solutions to address these uh, challenges. Essentially, how you can provide better privacy protection and at the same time to be able to utilize data. Uh, so to address these challenges uh, that I just mentioned, uh, essentially we need a new framework because what we have today, as we have seen, is really insufficient. So this leads to this new paradigm and framework that I call responsible data economy. Uh, essentially to, um, uh, to build up uh, uh, this new um, framework that can, yeah, ultimately can help us to both uh, establish and ensure uh, users' rights to data uh, and, how, uh, and uh, to help them maintain uh, their rights to data, including how you know, they want their data to be used and so on. And also at the same time, to really enable data to be more effectively utilized while um, in complying uh, and uh, uh, right, honoring uh, and enforcing these uh, users' rights to data. So that's really the essence of uh, this uh, responsible data economy is to, I would say, is to bring what we see um, the conflict actually into ideally a win-win situation um, for users and businesses. Obviously, when we're thinking about um, data and privacy, um, there are different cultural attitudes towards it. So I, I would argue it's not the same in uh, Europe and Germany, for example, as it is on the West Coast of the US, um, similarly in, in China and, and parts of Asia. So. When we're talking about privacy and we're talking about data, um, how do you see what you're doing with Oasis or that kind of mission of responsible data? Do, do you believe that there is a, a universal form of privacy that is common across all of these different cultures? Um, are there actually multiple data economies? So rather than being a data economy, there are multiple data economies. And how does that interact with the different polities that um, effectively, uh, you know, from a jurisdictional perspective? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, of course, uh, different people naturally have different preferences. Uh, and hence, I think the point of the responsible data economy is to uh, that's why I would say it's to give users control. And users can decide what, what they are comfortable with and uh, what their preference is. Um, so for example, uh, let me actually give, give you one use case that we have been working on, and this is a product uh, that we will be launching soon uh, with a partner. Uh, so this is a use case in genomic data. So, uh, so as we know, like genomic data, of course, is one of the most sensitive data uh, for users, and in particular, you cannot change it. Uh, you can't change your genes. And uh, so, so right. So it's uh, you know privacy is particularly important. And uh, so you may have heard of Twenty uh, Three Me and uh, and other companies like that. These are direct to consumer. 
uh, genomic companies that they provide genomic analysis to their users. And these companies, actually, Tensor Me and, uh, and Ancestry, uh, at, uh, earlier this year, they actually uh, you know, had layoffs um, citing in particular for uh, the slower uh, demands in consumer um, due to, uh, mainly due to, like, uh, largely due to privacy concerns. And I've had a number of my friends actually told me that they would be uh, concerned about using these type of uh, you know, genomic uh, um, uh, services uh, for, right, for privacy concerns and so on. So, so the, the product service that we um, were in the process of launching uh, with a partner in the space is to actually help users to become owners of their genomic data and uh, take control of their genomic data. So in this case, um, users' data will be stored in encrypted form and, and users have the, have the control, they can decide how they want the data to be used and who they, who they would allow uh, the data to be used. So for example, in this case, the user can give consent to a genomic company uh, and to have the genomic company run genomic analysis on their data to provide uh, results. So for example, you know, like what disease you may have uh, higher likelihoods and to have and, and, and so on. And then in this case, actually utilizing our technology actually by combining secure computing and blockchain. So the blockchain helps uh, uh, helps uh, you keep an immutable ledger of uh, users' rights to data. In this case, their rights to their genomic data, and uh, and also their um, the policy for their data. For example, in this case, they consent. Uh, for their data to be used by this particular genomic analysis company. And, and then when the genomic uh, company runs the analysis, the genomic company actually doesn't get a raw copy of the user's data. Uh, the analysis is run in a secure execution environment. And, uh, and then in this case, so the user will see the results, um, but the genomic company, uh, from the, because the computation actually runs uh, in this uh, Secure uh, execution environments, uh, the genomic com company again right, doesn't get a copy of this uh, of the raw data, and hence after the computation is done, um, the genomic company doesn't really have access to the data. Again, if it wants to use the data, it needs to ask for permission again to use the data and so on. So then, um, and in this case, this is how users can maintain control of their data and also at the same time still benefit from the data. And, and uh, of course, there are many more other use cases like this. And then again, so one thing here you may notice is it's up to the user to decide. So for example, for some users, actually, they put their genomic data open uh, in the public. Um, but uh, lots of other users have more concerns about uh, properly protecting their genomic data and so on. So I think what we are doing here is provide the technologies and the tools to help users to achieve uh, what they want, uh, while providing yeah. the capabilities to support a wide spectrum. 
the interesting point about that use case, genomic data, is that it builds up a very strong argument for user centricity, or as you say, user control. Because on the one hand, you know, I've, I've heard the example of if you hand over the rights to your genomic data um, to a particular organization, then effectively it's turned your DNA into IP, and that IP could be sold to pharma, um, you, you effectively lose control, you could be cloned in the future, who knows. Um, but at the same time, for the organization that has to own that data, they have to be able to secure it. And um, to secure it, uh, to fail to secure it is a huge liability now, especially with data laws like GDPR. The cost of not securing it could be billions. It could bankrupt um, a company. I think in, in some in some cases it's almost unlimited. So there is a very good commercial argument as to why you don't necessarily want to directly own the data. You just want to have access to that data to derive value from it for putting into machine learning, for example. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. This is also some of the value propositions that. We uh, we provide to our customers is that uh, right um, because oftentimes they actually don't have the the skill sets uh, and the technology needed to to do that well. Right. So I, I, we're kind of naturally going into uh, one of my other questions, which is um, if you look at your research background, there are kind of these parallel streams. You have you know an interest in cryptography, apply cryptography, blockchain, and then of course, machine learning. And these two streams have converged into what you're now doing at uh, Oasis Labs and with the Oasis Network. Was that was there an aha moment in that process? Or did it just naturally happen? And, um, you know, could you explain, I guess, the benefits of blockchain to machine learning? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I would say, really, uh, so blockchain here, as I mentioned, for example, in the Oasis network uh, platform, uh, we are combining like blockchain and secure computing, uh, where the blockchain provides a mutable ledger for uh, users' rights to data and um, their policies on how their data should be utilized and so on. And in machine learning. Of course, as we know, in particular, uh, you know, with today's methods like deep learning and so on, it's hugely data hungry, and uh, you need a huge amount of uh, data to train these models and so on. And uh, and of course, oftentimes a lot of the data can be very sensitive. Uh, so um, so essentially, with the Oasis platform. Uh, again, as I mentioned, with this responsible data economy, it helps uh, to uh, helps users to maintain control of their data uh, and the rest of data, and also at the same time, the data can be utilized in a privacy-preserving way. For example, to help train machine learning models, and also um, because with the blockchain here. We actually track every access to users' data, how the data is being used, um, by who, um, by what program, and so on. So then, in this case, it also naturally establishes an audit trail even for value distribution. So for example, 
the uh, uh, if uh, a machine learning model is trained using uh, users' data, and the machine learning model later on becomes a profitable service, uh, then uh, some of that profits could be distributed back to the data contributors. And uh, in my research uh, at Berkeley with my students and postdocs and so on and the collaborators, we also actually have studied the question about how to value data. So for example, if you train a machine learning model using a set of data points from different data sources, different data contributors, what's the best way, what's the fair way to distribute the value created by the machine learning model back to the data distributor, data contributors. And in there, we actually identified this notion called the Shapley Valley, uh, which actually provides a uniquely uh, suited, well-suited solution that uh, essentially um, uh, satisfies a set of desired properties. Um, so, uh, right, so this is another example how um, you know how this responsible data economy and this uh, new framework can actually help users not just maintain control of their data and rights to data and also getting benefits directly from their data. And we are um, uh, also further exploring using these technologies, we can create what we call data trust, where different users can put their data into this data trust. And uh, and again, uh, right for these uh, data consumers, uh, they can then utilize the data to train machine models, uh, do other analysis, and so on. And then um, and there this uh, helps with, for example, social goods for medical research and so on. Or if it uh, it uh, uh, generates uh, revenue or profits it can be uh, distributed back into the trust and distributed back to the data contributors and so on. And, uh, and the hope is that in the future, uh, again, this actually can be a very good way to help solve this data silo problems as well. So to make it easier for machine learning researchers to gain access to data and also at the same time to, uh, at, at the same time to uh, provide privacy protection for users' data. I think you know new models in data ownership, data trust, data commons, um, where you can aggregate data uh, against predefined purposes. I think is a really interesting space. I'm going to be interested to see how that converges with DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, around the ownership of data. Um, and uh, an interesting area which Trent McConaughey of Ocean. Um, talks about a lot, he's done a recent post again in September, is the idea of leveraging the billions of dollars that have gone into creating wallets, assets and exchanges for crypto, this is kind of high value asset, how that can be now repurposed for the data economy, which you could argue is a lower value asset. But um, we can now leverage the same infrastructure if we can turn data into into a digital asset um so one of the things so i, I kind of i personally totally subscribe to all the things that you've been talking about it, it kind of feels like there's still some missing 
building blocks for us to achieve this in Web3, in particular on identity. And I know that this has been an area you've been speaking about a lot recently. Um, if we're going to give control and permission to data um, in an increasingly decentralized way, we somehow need to solve for decentralized identity, self-sovereign identity. Um, uh, through innovations such as DID's decentralized identifiers. Uh, how do you see the importance of solving identity? And you know, do you think that that limits what's possible today? Or do you think that there's kind of a, a hybrid approach, a more centralized approach, which can allow us to still unlock this value from the data economy? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think decentralized identity is just one step in this uh, right, responsible data economy, uh, where you want users to own their data or uh, to maintain uh, control to their data and their rights to data, and their uh, decentralized, decentralized identity uh, help them, and uh, it's a it's one step in this uh, in this process. Essentially, if you think about it, as users maintain you know control of their data the way they can, uh, maintain control of their data is that essentially you can uh, utilize decentralized identity to help uh, maintain, uh, you know, to identify which data the user uh, has control over uh, and so on. So the, the mechanics actually, um, it's a natural component in that, but the response of the data economy is much broader than just identity as, you know, different aspects of user's data and how that data can be Utilize in a privacy preserving way. Right. And, um, and then I guess to, to, to zoom out a bit, you know, if we look at uh, what we collectively are trying to achieve in the responsible data economy, um, we're kind of putting in place these various building blocks, protocols to, to create a stack to allow um, this, this fairer, more responsible, or at least user controlled data economy. Um, but ultimately, in, in my mind, that is really to serve a fairer or more responsible AI economy, because ultimately, the purpose for data these days is to, to feed into or improve forms of AI, uh, or at least machine learning. Um, so if we look at that paradigm that we're building uh, alongside other instances, things like uh, GPT-3 um, that's being rolled out by OpenAI, which is a collaboration between a number of organizations, including Musk and Peter Thiel, um, that is permissioned, at least for now. Um, whilst it's open source, it is heavily permissioned um, and is not leveraging blockchain, is not token optimized in any way. Do, do you see this as a a parallel competing paradigm um, or are they, are they different things? Are they working towards different ends? So I think one thing I think that's really important that uh, we are still just at the very beginning is that right now uh, the, the AI power is more concentrated in the like the bigger uh, bigger companies and, and so on. And ultimately, as the, um, 
the AFR becomes more even even more and more advanced and so on. Like so many different aspects of users' lives would be uh you know impacted, influenced or even determined by you know these AI uh agents. And ideally I think as a next step, talking about self-sovereignty, there's you know, self-sovereignty of finance, your data, but ultimately you want to have self-sovereignty of AI. Meaning you would like to have AI assistance agents that actually work on your behalf, that that is working um, for your best interest, instead of um, uh, just you know providing your data to some other third-party AI agents that mm, that may have others best interests uh, at heart. So uh, I we are still like really early um, for that. Um, I think like two years ago, I actually gave a talk on this about how eventually we would like to build this paradigm that we call AI Eden that actually helped users to uh, not just maintain control of their data and rest of data, but ultimately actually have these AI agents that is under user's control and works for the best interests of, uh, of users. Um, so, so I, right, I think ultimately that's where we want to be. And, uh, and it's great to see. Uh, so first of all, these, um, uh, right, first we need to actually build these powerful, uh, AI agents, uh, and so on. And yeah, so today, like GPT-3, it's still, uh, like the model is really big. And so it's, uh, it's difficult uh, also for you know, individuals to, like, uh, uh, to, to maintain their own and so on. Um, but, uh, but I hope that uh, in the future, um, as the AI, uh, uh, the, the AI technology uh, continues to improve, and I do hope that one day I think this would uh, become true. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. So whilst uh, in, in parallel, people are building out these these new models, which will hopefully become increasingly more open or at least less concentrated in in the hands of a few platforms. If if in parallel, we're also fixing the web, we're building a web that has increased levels of user centricity. By the time that 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 open AI matures, it can be birthed into a web which uh, serves the individual versus, say, the shareholder or or the state. Um, uh, Dawn, it's been really fascinating talking to you. Uh, I know we we tried really hard to make this happen um, for for a number of reasons, uh, notwithstanding uh, Zoom Zoom problems. Because at the moment I'm speaking to you, you're you're in in China, and that's always technical difficulties. So, thanks for making this happen and, and bearing with those technical difficulties. Um, and good luck with Mainnet um, for. Uh, Oasis Network, I believe that this is imminent, right? You're aiming for, for October this year, 2020. Yes, September, October timeframe, yes. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I like the way you gave yourself some flex there, you know, a, a good four-week flex. Um, Dawn, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks for your time. Uh, looking forward to speaking to you again. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun talking together. 
If you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world raise $130 million in growth funding and can help you fast track product market fit and where relevant, the launch of your token economy.